Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on America, China, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution, and today I am joined by a Stanford alum and someone that anyone who has read anything about China knows very well. John Pomfret. John is an award-winning journalist, someone who has been dealing with China, living in China, writing about China for over four decades now. Uh, He is lauded for his work, his first book, Chinese Lessons, Five Classmates, and the Story of the New China, which came out in 1996, which is a bestseller, and his second and more recent book, The Beautiful Country and the Middle Kingdom, America and China, 1776 to the Present, which, as a historian, I can attest is just an outstanding work of synthesis, and was awarded the 2017 Arthur Ross Award by the Council on Foreign Relations. John, a longtime uh, journalist with the Washington Post and currently is a contributing writer to the Post Global Opinion section uh, and someone deeply involved with China studies uh, in universities and outside. John, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks so much for having me, Misha. It's great to be here. Well, one of the things that um, makes you so unique is uh, the the long-term interaction that you've had with China, really starting, even if we can say before becoming a professional, but as a student. Um, You first went over in 1980, uh, just which was one year after uh, the U.S. and China normalized relations. You were only uh, 18, 19 years old then, and so really your entire adult life uh, has been spent uh, in China, and as someone who went over fairly early, not quite that early to Japan, uh, but when Japan was booming, it certainly made sense to me to go to Japan. But why in the world would a young man choose China in 1980, just four years after Mao died, and when the country was still, you know, at honestly barely a blip on on the world radar? What what caused you to go, and what did you what did you take away from your years living in China? Uh, great question. Uh... I, was at, I went to Stanford in 77 uh, with plans to be a neurophysiologist. And then I confronted college chemistry, and college chemistry won. It always does, doesn't it? Always it always does. <laughs> and, um, but Stanford at the time also had a whole group of really fascinating China people. Robert North, Mark Mankall, and Polly Tsai. Uh, Peter Deuce was Japanese historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had... Um, uh, B.F. Skinner uh, in wow. anthropology. So they had a whole group of really interesting China-related people. And as a way to kind of get out under the maw of this massive STEM courses that I was that I had committed to taking, I, and Hal Khan also in history, I mm-hmm. began to take courses that just so happened to be related to China. And I started doing really well in them. And the professors sort of encouraged my interest and pushed me to do more. And the more I took, the more I became interested in it. And then I began taking the language. Uh, And it just basically steamrolled from there. And then at the same time, on the front page of the New York Times, which we were all reading, there were these stories about this impending normalization of relationships between between the two countries. And so kind of like the outside world began to marry with my internal world really pushing me to become more and more interested in sort of getting the sense that, wow, China is just this amazing place. And I'd gone to Stanford from the East Coast 
because I really was footloose, I wanted a new experience. For Where were you? From? I'd grown up in New York City, grew up in Brooklyn, went to a very small liberal arts, um, very liberal a high school in Brooklyn, had no grades. We were all kind of hippies. And, and I wanted to get out of that ecosystem into something completely new, which was Stanford. And then from Stanford, I kind of had a further desire to go further, if you will. I would have thought you would have said, uh, if you want to get out of that ecosystem, get into the Marines. That would have been the opposite. That probably, would have, been smarter, that probably would, have, would have been a smarter, uh, smarter road for me to take. But, but that said, um, and after my third year at Stanford, um, by that time, I was all, already taking basically all my classwork was sort of Chinese related. The, uh, the opportunity arose to go to Taiwan to teach English. So I applied. Mm-hmm. Stanford had this great pro- program called Volunteers in Asia. And I applied to that. And luckily, they rejected me because about a month later, the opportunity arose to go to China to study Chinese in China, in Beijing. And I'm like, I want to do that. And so went for that full bore, got this amazing letter written on rice paper from China, which began, salutations, dear Pomfret. And that letter (laughs) was effectively a letter that um, asked me to go to a Chinese consulate in America and get a visa. And I went to the Chinese consulate in San Francisco, and they're like, we can't give you a visa based on this letter and rice paper. But time, you know, time passed, and ultimately I got the visa. And then I found myself in September of 1980, uh, just finishing my junior year at Stanford at the Beijing Language Institute uh, with a, an American roommate studying Chinese five hours a day. That, that, that's, that's incredible. And how long... Did you stay in China? So that first iteration, I spent a semester at the Beijing Languages Institute. And then I, again, footloose, I wanted to get out of Beijing. I wanted to get into a smaller city with kind of more intimate relations with Chinese people. And at the time, Nanjing University, uh, down, you know, sort of near Shanghai on the Yangtze River, it was run by a, uh, a guy named Kuo Yaoming, who was um, a liberal, if you will within the Chinese context. And he was allowing foreign students to live in Chinese dormitories. And at the time in China for foreign students, it was always sort of a game of how close you could get to Chinese people because the government constructed all these elaborate systems to sort of block you from having normal conversations with people, getting to know people. And our kind of the the fascinating thing for us was how to get around those blocks, how to get to people's houses, get into their lives, have dinner with them at, at, at their homes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so Nanjing at the time was a place that allowed foreigners to live in Chinese dormitories with Chinese students. And I'm like, I want to go there. So in February of 1991, uh, um, uh, sorry, 1981, I find myself living with seven guys in a 10 by 15 foot room, uh, dormitory number one at Nanjing University. So, and they're, and they're all Chinese. They're all Chinese. So uh, basically it's four bunk beds. You know, I got the top bunk near the uh, bottom bunk near the window. The guy sleeping on top of me is the party secretary for the history students. So he's there to basically literally monitor me on top of me. Um, uh, (laughs) but, but, you know, there's only so much monitoring you can, you can do in, 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 in a, in a room with eight dudes, I mean, you really get to see Chinese life up close and personal. And that's really what I wanted to accomplish in China. And, and it really, they, those, those, those boys and men, because we actually had 30-year-olds who were matriculating, given the fact that the Cultural Revolution had blocked so much of their education. So our class, the, the age of the, of, of, of the age range of my, my fellow students went from 17 to 30-something. 
Um, and that wealth of experience was kind of like the GI Bill in the 1940s after the Second World War with, with veterans who had uh, fought, in, uh, fought in Normandy uh, vying, um, you know, going to school with guys straight out of high school. And, and that richness of experience was something that I just had a taste of with these people listening to their stories. And at the time, China was going through this kind of, you know, psychological purging of the horror of the Cultural Revolution. So everybody wanted to talk about what had happened to them or their parents or their loved ones during the Cultural Revolution. Um, and uh, a, a sort of a foreigner who was willing to listen was an easy target because we were safe. We weren't going to report about them behind their backs. We weren't going to go mm-hmm. to the party secretary to communist. So basically, we could be trusted with their secrets. And I found myself the repository of these incredible stories from all of these, you know, all of my classmates, which is you know quite extraordinary. One of my classmates' father was was basically murdered in front of him. Another guy had, was forced by the for, by the Red Guard to to oust his mother and out his mother and criticize his mother in front of the whole village. So these type of real, real deep traumas were something that these guys really wanted to share, which really kind of pulled me into the modern Chinese history, if you will. It, it, it reminds me, it's an incredible moment. And, you know, um, you were lucky, obviously, right? I mean, there have been people studying China um, since then for decades, and obviously for decades before that. And you were there at this unique moment that's just historical chance and luck. It reminds me a little bit of uh, people like um, Donald Keene and Donald Ritchie, who wound up in Japan right after the war. Actually, you know, they were they were brought in during the war, and they had that they had that same experience of of suddenly this nation that we, we thought we knew, but we didn't know, um, opening up. And and you you had that. It, uh, I was looking through um, some of Milton Friedman's papers in the Hoover archives, uh, well, before COVID, so already two years ago now. Uh, and he was very involved with the Social Science Research Council's initiatives uh, in China. You know, they reached out. And it was the same period. It was 78, 79, 80. And just an incredible flowering, an incredible sense of, of opportunity. Um, but we're 40 years on now, we're four decades down the road. Uh, how well do you think we understand China after these decades of people like you and, and others, uh, scholars, students, journalists, business people going over? Um, you know, you lived it. Uh, I lived in Japan for four years, so I think I can empathize with your sense of really learning about the country. How how well do we know China, do you think? And, and are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Are we retrograding, if that's a word? Where are we? And where have we come from? That's, I mean, that's a great question. And I think in, on some, in some areas, we, we know it better by far um, in terms of, for example, their environmental challenges and those type of issues. Uh, in other areas, the Communist Party has really spent a lot of time hiding what they think and what their plans are from uh, many in the West. And like in the 1980s, uh, even up through um, the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown, a lot of the policy debates in China were on the front page of Chinese newspapers. And they were open really for all to see whether the party and the state should be separated, whether economic reform should continue, uh, if they do continue with a type of level, how to deal with the, you know, sort of 
massive privatization of small medium enterprises, these type of issues were really on the front pages of, of many Chinese newspapers. And so it, there was a sort of there was a there was a level of transparency that the party after 1989 has really taken great pains to um, deplete, partially because they view this transparency as a sign of weakness. And they also believe that letting foreigners in on their secrets, their policy debates actually weakens them as they kind of deal with the rest of the world. And so on some levels, we have far less information, for example, about China's political systems and the, and the various battles, the, the personal, stru personal struggles, et cetera, than we used to. But on other levels, we have a lot more information as well, because, because you know, the actual massive, before COVID, this is, the massive back and forth between both countries, the cross-pollination, the joint research projects, et cetera, that's also increased a lot of transparency as well, um, despite the best efforts of the Communist Party of China. Would you say that your own views, where would you put yourself now? Would you say that your own views have hardened? Are you more of a skeptic? Um, are you because you, you know the country so well? You, do you feel you, you are um, seeing things that we need to be warned about? Or are you, uh, are you the same person you were in the 80s and maybe 90s on China, that, that this is a country to, um, you know, to, uh, that, that the future is bright, maybe. I don't know if that you saw it that way, but how do you put yourself now and where have, how have you evolved? So that's a, that's a, for me, a, um, a, a really difficult question to answer because on one level, you know, I'm, I'm married to a woman who's a Chinese national. And she has an American green card and all that, but she doesn't really want to become an American. And she has a huge amount of love for her country. And I kind of um, appreciate that because her generation, she was born in, 19, in, the, in the early 1970s, is a generation really benefited greatly. Uh, she's a woman entrepreneur and China really gave her a lot of potential opportunities to succeed. And, and she, she succeeded with those opportunities, but nonetheless, compared to other nations in Asia, like Thailand, like South Korea, like Japan, Chinese women actually do extremely well. Um, specifically professional women. So on that one level, I have a lot of kind of not sympathy for China, but sort of understanding that within the Asian context, it's actually a place where women, uh, to a certain extent, not, uh, you know, but, but compared to their um, sisters in, in the rest of Asia, do hold up half the sky. And so that gives me a certain amount of sympathy for where China's at and where potentially it could go. On the other hand, I understand that within the core of the Communist Party of China, there is a, a extremely influential group of people who have always viewed the United States and everything we stand for as an enemy. And that group is extremely powerful today. And that group was weakened somewhat in the 1980s, but restated their claim to power in 1989. And ever since then, they have maintained significant influence on the direction of the party state. Um, and an increasing amount of influence with the rise of Xi Jinping in 2012. And so I have to balance, on one hand, my kind of appreciation um, and respect for the system that China created that allowed for women like my wife to be successful, at the same time, an understanding that at the core of the Communist Party of China is a group of people who have a very different vision and don't, do not share the values of an open society with free people. And, and so it's messy, if you will. Um, this is this is a really to get get the complexity of my emotions. Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, and we're you know we're we're also 
you know, I'm not here to, to have a, you know, a therapy session about, you know, about John's, John's tortured, you know, relationship with China, but, you know, but as someone who has been doing it for so long, I think it's very important because there is a struggle going on within the Chinese studies community that I want to turn to in a minute. But I think what you just said is very, very interesting, very important, very, very important, because what we hear a lot today is that it's all about Xi, meaning Xi Jinping, that if only Xi Jinping goes away, then we'll have no problem. We we can deal with this. Now, what you've said is that um, basically we had sort of 10 years, 10 good years, more or less, of dealing with a uh, a set of rulers in China who were committed or, or seemed to be committed to what we shorthand call reform and opening up. Since Tiananmen in 1989, which we are now talking over 30 years, at this point it'll be 33 years soon, um, have... Uh, have been superseded or or again ceded ground to another group that has been very influential in guiding Chinese policy again for over three decades that is much more skeptical of the United States sees us certainly as competitor if not an adversary um can you talk a little bit more about that? First of all, who are these people? Because again, the, the argument is, well, it's all about Xi. Everything was fine until Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. Uh, and and that that seems to me to be clearly not the case. So can you talk a little bit about who they were, how they influenced policy uh, from 89 onward, what we missed, why we missed it? And then let's talk a little bit about the state of Chinese studies, because I think that's very very important. But this is what you've just said is fascinating. So in 89, right, I mean, uh, after the Tiananmen Square crackdown, George H.W. Bush sends uh, Larry Eagleburger and Brent Scowcroft, the Assistant Secretary of State, Deputy Secretary of State, and um, and his National Security Advisor to China to talk with Deng Xiaoping about trying to keep the U.S.-China relationship on track. And Deng basically uh, lambasted them for for several days of meetings, basically at a certain point saying, you know, you tied the knot, I you created this problem in my country, you have to untie it. You meaning liberalism. Completely, completely blaming the United States. Sorry, we're gonna say something. I was gonna say you mean liberalism. You mean the the, the, the democracy movement, right, the, democracy the student movement. movement. Basically okay. blaming the United States for fomenting somehow the Tiananmen Square student-led protests for a freer country, right? And I think that um, obviously, it was. It took a while for those for those documents to be declassified. But a reading of those documents really gets gives gives the reader a sense that that Deng Xiaoping firmly believed that we were responsible for the chaos of 1989, and that his job was to crack down on that chaos and from from then on to really view the United States as an enemy. And I think he was encouraged to have these views by the Ministry of Security and the security people around him, who from those moments on, they were always influential, of course, but who from that, that, those moments on really had a very strong influence on how the, United, how the United States would be perceived by China and then how China would conduct itself both internationally, but also in terms of its domestic politics as well. And so from 89 on, you see almost no tolerance for dissent and an increasing intolerance of dissent. Now, Xi Jinping, I think, is new and different to the extent that he's added a massive dose of accelerant on crackdown on religion, crackdown on freedom of thought, crackdown on freedom of association, crackdown on the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, crackdown on Tibet, etc. But that said, he is building on a base that has accelerated from 89 slowly 
through the, uh, his predecessor, Hu Jintao, up until this day. And their views of the United States, I think, have only gotten worse, but are not a fun. Xi Jinping does not, from my perspective, represent a fundamental break in the narrative of Chinese communist history from 89 on. He's simply an accelerator. He's actually been able to achieve more power than his predecessors. But that said, he's pursuing policies that were already in train before he got into the into the big chair. And I think this idea that if he goes away, everything's going to be hunky-dory is just silly. It's just not, it's not the direction of where China's heading en masse. Now, there could be a possibility, should he leave the, the scene, of some type of change, but I just don't see it as happening. There, is too, there are too many interest groups who have achieved too much power um, to, to, to actually sort of collapse should, 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 should he be removed from the scene. It's just, I think it, it, that represents, from my perspective, one of the things we've never gotten right about China which is this idea which is repeated over and over and over again of we need to pursue policy X with China because it's going to help this liberal camp in China that's just waiting for American support so that they can rise to prominence. And I just think that's, that's I mean, after a while, you want to say, can't we, push, can't we put this kind of this, this, this idea to rest for a bit and just come to the conclusion, basically conclude, which I think we should, is that there is no kind of closet group of liberals in China waiting for American largesse to take the scene. It's just not going to happen. And yet, and yet we hear that a lot, um, all the time, uh, from, from older generations, um, about, we just have to not push the, we just have to not push the, the liberals. We have to give them space. We can't, you know, upset the apple cart. Um, why do you think that we missed this? What you were just talking about, what is it? So I, I had, um, uh, John Mearsheimer on, uh, a little bit, uh, ago, a few weeks ago. And he obviously he comes at it from a realist paradigm. He's not a, he's not a China expert, but I asked him, why did the U S in the case of China communist China, not continue the very successful policy it had done during um, uh, the Cold War of, of containment, meaning his point is, look, we we destroyed our own unipolar moment. We created this Chinese monster, so to speak, by bringing it into the WTO, of course, normalizing relations, kicking Taiwan out of the UN. Um, and so I asked him, you know, well, why, why did we miss it? And he said, well, we, we were just, you know, besotted with the end of history idea, with the idea of the triumph of liberal capitalism. But you're adding a different element, right? He's at that sort of international relations level, you're at the level of, of, of those dealing with China and working with China. Why did they miss it? Those who, I guess, I, I hope it's fair to say they should have known better, but, but they didn't. I don't know whether they should have known better. I just, I think there were a lot of honest mistakes that were made. And it, part of it has to do with the, the history of how Americans have interacted with China since the, the, the 19th century, since the 18th century, was this sense that American power, American markets, American ideas would transform China into our image. And whether you're a missionary for Jesus or you're a missionary for capitalism or you're a missionary for democracy, China has always been this vast market waiting for American love, if you will. And so there was there was that kind of cultural sense of how Americans have historically interacted with China. The second uh, issue is that the people with whom these businessmen, diplomats, politicians related with in China spoke English fluently, 
and gave mm-hmm. Americans the impression that um, perhaps they were very uh, sincere in their, their, their kind of appreciation of American liberalism. But they didn't have the power in China to actually affect that change. And so your interlocutors in China were folks who were very sophisticated, highly cultured, very well educated, probably with perfect English. And so it's easy to convince yourself that that person, man or woman, represents where China's going, represents China's future. But oftentimes in the back room, there's another guy who's there, who's Ministry of State Security background, People's Liberation Army background, and his views are in complete contrast with the views of that very globalized, internationalized individual who, who, who you just had your conversations with. And so many people didn't understand that kind of two-faced nature, if you will, of power in China. And so they kind of, uh, and, and, you know, you see it with a lot of American businessmen who don't speak Chinese, go to China, kind of bamboozled by the deputy minister of foreign affairs or the deputy minister for, of finance, who is Harvard educated or whatever, and thinking that is China, when the reality is that there's another China there. And that other China, since 89, I think has been extremely influential in, 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 in the nation in terms of um, fashioning its policies towards the rest of the world. And today, it's clearly at the top of its game. And for those who, who maybe don't have the experience, I know you have it far more than I do, but all of us have experienced um, that wooing where you're brought into one of these gigantic rooms with, you know, and you walk all the way to the end and there's two chairs set up and the tea's brought out and you think, you know, they make you the most important person in the world. Um, How do you, are you then um, uh, an adherent, I guess is the way to put it, of Anne-Marie Brady's argument in uh, to make the foreign serve China that, you know, a lot of this is, so you're right, on the one hand, you've got the very globalized Chinese, and then there's some guy in the back room, but then there's also that element in which just the the stage management, um, the the ego massaging, um, what, what I think uh, the political scientists I gather would call something like elite capture, not, not capture in terms of bribery and corruption, but in terms of you have the access, you're made to feel so important. I'll, I'll just tell one quick anecdote. And again, you know, as a guy who was not a China, uh, China, China scholar, you know, I went in and met with, I forget who it was now, but you're right. It was at this sort of deputy foreign minister level. And he brought a sheaf of my, my articles, you know, and, and, and someone had read them ostensibly and he's going through the points, right. And we think this is just a, it's such an insightful point and this is wonderful. Uh, but we, but we think you misinterpreted this one, but you know, for writers, you don't think anyone reads what you write. So suddenly here's this guy telling me, I, we've read all your pieces. And, you know, so it's, it's, it, there's an element to it that is really focused on shaping our perceptions. Um, so wh- how about Anne-Marie Brady's um, argument? And, and is that something that you think they're still doing? Or, or have we moved past that? Because in some ways, the gloves seem to be off. So uh, I think Anne-Marie Brady's scholarship on China is really... Um... Uh, unparalleled. And I think the whole idea of the construction of this ecosystem to handle us barbarians is something that they've done extremely well. uh, And they continue to try to do well. Um, And so um, China's cultivation of former Goldman Sachs executives is still ongoing. Uh, And their attempts to reach out to other businessmen will continue to go. 
uh, on because they they believe they look at those people as people who, who will lobby on their behalf in the capitals around around the world. And so, yes, they spend a lot of effort in barbarian handling and they've had significant results because of it, um, because all of us. You included, me included, love when the Chinese pay attention to us, uh, and and they're 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 more remarkable at it. So so that is a huge kind of um, if you will industry in China, and it's and and then they've reaped great benefits from by by doing it. Well, well, one might argue we've moved into a new era where we don't want them to pay too much attention to us. And I, I had the privilege just a few weeks ago of meeting Michael Kovrig and talking with him. And, um, you know, that's, that's, and that raises a question. I, I, I keep, I, I can't get to the question I want to ask you about the field because other things keep popping up. Cause it's so fascinating what you're talking about. Um, let me pop this one in. Cause I'll forget it. If I don't ask now, um, do you go back to China? Will uh, COVID accepted? Will you go back? Because I, I know a lot of people in my position who have written critically about China um, will not go back after what happened to the two Michaels and, and others. I can completely relate to that emotion. And I've yet to have the opportunity to go back. Uh, I was rejected uh, in two visa applications in 2017. Wow. So further visa applications, you still you now have to answer that question on the form. Have you ever been refused to deny a visa to China? And my answer will have to be yes, mm-hmm. which will then put my toss my visa application up to authorities in Beijing. So I don't really don't know whether if even if I want to go back, I'll be, have the opportunity to do so for the time being. Let's just leave it at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Does your wife go back? I don't want to get, you know, on personal family stuff, but is she able to go back or, she's able or is to go that back. also? Yes. She's yeah. able to go back. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, but it is a, it is a different, uh, it is a different era. And again, for, for someone like me who lived in Japan and, you know, there's never a problem going back to Japan and it, and it is a, a, um, I think it's a sad feeling for many of us. It certainly is for me, the idea that I'm probably never going to go back, at least without significant changes. And now you have to take Hong Kong off the table too, which is, you know, we're, we're living in a very different era. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, a book uh, without getting too much into it, a history that I was sort of toying with writing about a, a Victorian era um, British uh, intelligence officer who had traveled all around China. Um, and I realized, you know, if I had been doing this back in the eighties and nineties, and maybe even the aughts, I could have done a lot of that travel if I, if I had wanted to, and today I can't. So, so let me, let me pivot then from that to, to talking a little bit about the field, because again, you, you've, you've given us such an insight into, um, uh, you know, the, the personal experience in China. And we have a, we have a field that has grown up uh, over the past decades, you know, you being sort of a first, uh, one of the earlier younger generations in that, you know, again, starting in the 80s. Um, is the field split? Uh, are there still people who think that, you know, not that there's nothing wrong with China, I don't think anyone would say that, but, you know, we're, we're the ones, we're causing problems, we need to just maintain engagement, we have to go over. Um, there was a letter in the Washington Post that that came out um, in the early COVID, it wasn't about COVID per se, but uh, the the title was um, Don't Make China an Enemy, uh, and it had 100 signatures of of very well-known people, and you wrote a response in the post that said, this is not really the right way to go about it. So can you talk a little bit about why you wrote your response, but also what what, where the field is, because this is very important? Well, 
I think the field is in flux even more so now than it was back back then. And I think this it's an interesting kind of signpost, if you will. Rush Doshi, who is uh, on the National Security Council in the Biden administration, wrote a book published recently called The Long Game, in which really for the first time you have somebody in the Democratic Party laying out the argument that China's woeful kind of changes um, and the changes sort of carried out by Xi Jinping um, build on a foundation of things that have that were that, that, that you know um, preceded his his rise to power and that China really is focused on its goal at least is to replace the United States in the Western Pacific and to uh, co- directly compete with the US dollar in terms of international currency etc Um and I think that's that's interesting because it's a sign that within the Democratic Party as well, there are people who have soured significantly on on China. And so my sense is that um, if you would ask those hundred people who signed the letter uh, several years ago on let's not make China into an enemy, whether they'd consider signing the letter again, you might you might find and this is just me guessing that the number would have dropped by a few maybe more than a few. I think there's now generally accepted in most quarters the conclusion that the woeful state of the U.S.-China relations is pretty much China's fault. Um, Yes, the United States has done its share of damage. You know, the EP3 incident, the bombing of China's embassy, et cetera, giving uh, sort of the anti-America forces in China lots of fuel for uh, lots of ammunition for their case, but that said, um, the, the issues we're facing with China have less to do with how America is related to China and have far more to do with how China is related to the United States. And I don't think that's as contested now as it used to be. I just don't. I think that within the Democrat, in fact, um, the position on China is probably arguably the only thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on. Um, and, and so I think that 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 ship has sailed in this country, at least um, for to, a while. It was up for debate, but I think that debate pretty much being settled. Yeah. And to that point, the um, the House of Representatives just passed last week. I think it was 428 to one. The uh, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, um, which, again, you know, is is a is a pretty significant piece of legislation. There's a similar one in the Senate. They've agreed the differences. Uh, so it will go forward. But to your point about in a very fractured and polarized political environment, this is does seem to be the one thing that that people agree on. And yet and yet I'm worried that. Um, you know, when it becomes the common wisdom, then nuance goes out the window, right? Um, which is not to say, no, there's no problem with China. In fact, you know, I would argue as, as someone who looked at the broad U.S.-Asia relationship and, and as a historian, certainly I was arguing on the side when people were saying there's, you know, don't create problems and we have to have, uh, you know, sort of unrestrained engagement. You know, I was more of a skeptic. Uh, and also from my own work on uh, the Soviet Communist Party, looking at Leninist parties and the like. Um, but even even so, now that everybody's on one side of the boat, so to speak, I, I worry that it might tip over. Are we losing a sense of nuance? Is it is it everyone's rushing to to out hawk the other on China? What does that 
What does that mean in terms of policy? Because I want to then ask a follow-up, which is where do you think we're going in U.S.-China policy? But let's start with the, you know, if, if everybody's on one side and is, is the island going to tip over and what do we do about it? So I think that's a great point, Misha. And I've never been a, 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 an opponent of engagement. And I think that the only way out is engagement. And it has to be aggressive and it has to be sometimes problematic and difficult. Um, but you have to engage China because it's just too big. And that doesn't mean currying favor. That doesn't mean saying, okay, we're going to go soft on human rights because you're going to give us something at the climate change uh, conference, which is just completely naive, that idea, because China's going to do something on climate change if it serves China's interests, not because you've been soft on human rights. Right. So, the, so China will always attempt to leverage X for Y we have to be very, very cognizant of those those games that they play and focus on X to get X and worry about Y later on. And so that said, uh, I agree with you that it's become, once it's become sort of received wisdom that, you know, China's to blame, then all sorts of other problems start to, to crop up. And one of them is to, to basically stop engaging. And I don't think you can do that. I just don't think it's feasible. I don't think it's going to work. And you do open yourself up when you continue engaging to allegations that you're selling out to America. And so you have to be mindful of that issue as well. But I think that it has to be done because China is too important not to do it. So give us some pomfret rules for engaging. You know, what, what you said, I think one word was particularly important. It was naivete. And it's not naivete because Americans aren't smart. It's naivete because, you know, quite frankly, Americans both were operating from a position of, 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 being a superpower when China wasn't in in many of these years. Uh, and also Americans are inherently genetically optimistic, right? We, we, we are optimistic about the world. I think we're optimistic about the human condition. I certainly hope that's not changing in our country, but we are naive at times. Uh, and we, we just think that if you just talk a little bit more, a little bit more clearly, things are going to start working out. So give us Pomfret's rules for engaging going forward. So, I would say I would have one main rule, which I think can avoid a lot of problems, which is do not do not give something in exchange for a promise of better behavior in the future. I think that's an enormously uh, problematic perspective to, 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 to adopt when you approach China, because it generally doesn't work. You have to be far more transactional. If you give something, you have to get something immediately. And uh, I think that, that that should be kind of number one. And I think if that is done, not the whole, not, it's not, not going to solve all of our problems with China, but it will make dealing with China simpler. And, uh, and the second thing is don't surprise China when you can avoid surprising China. Um, uh, I think that's really important. So if you're going to do something that the Chinese aren't going to like, let them know, just let them know. Um, because it, it allows for them to look at, so on, on some areas you want to surprise your opponents or your competitors, but on other areas you don't need to. And so, for example, I don't know whether the decision to pull out of the Olympics was, I mean, to not send diplomatic representation to the Olympics was conveyed to the Chinese beforehand. But if it wasn't, it should have been. It just allows them uh, the mm -hmm. courtesy to know that they're going to get slapped in the face. And I think that's an important part of, to, to do in the relationship, um, obviously, without 
showing too many of your cards. But I think it, it helps to create a sense of predictability uh, in China uh, vis-a-vis us. And I think that's important in this, in, in this perilous times we are with China. I think giving them an idea of where our bottom line is is important, and that can be done easily through back channels. Well, th- these are two really great and clear rules, but you completely opened up a question I have to ask uh, regarding the first rule, which is, uh, without having to get political about it, but how do you then assess the Trump administration's policy? Because it, se- it seems to me that they did a lot of that in the sense of being transactional, which was transactional, which they were often lambasted for. Uh, and in the sense in general, I think of, of not giving up something for future promises. I wrote uh, a long piece trying to explain it as a policy of reciprocity, which is a word they ultimately started using later on. But it seemed to me that that's really what it was about. And that's a, to me, a perfectly fine principle that quite frankly goes back to the beginning of the Republic. George Washington talked about reciprocity in foreign relations and, and that that's what they were doing, whether it was airplane flights, um, Confucius Institutes, journalists, obviously trade issues. Um, so how, how, do you, how do you rate them? So to finish up, then, how do you rate what Trump was doing? And how do you rate what Biden's doing? So on Trump, I think that the reciprocity idea was a very good one. If you look at how it was carried out in terms of trade negotiations, I think there was by far too much focus on the trade deficit, which doesn't mm-hmm. really mean that much, and, and, and less focus on uh, China's uh, problematic practices of stealing Western technology, forced technolo- te- technology transfer, and issues like that, which I think are far more financially important, but also um, in terms of security important as well. So I would hail the Trump administration's policies on China and embracing the necessity that the relationship has to be carried out on a reciprocal basis. But I think that their focus, I think that the president's single-minded focus on the trade deficit was, was misplaced, to put it mildly. And the Biden administration? So I think the Biden administration kind of is following Trump's policies in some areas. So none of the tariffs have been lifted or very few of them have been lifted. And I think he's also trying to do his best to cobble together alliances to uh, help and to push U.S. values and U.S. You know, sort of and to try to push back against China's mercantilist. And that's also his military expansionist policies. I think it's still a work in progress. Um, but I don't think it's as inchoate as some people have said. I think it's a continuation of Trump with 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 continued kind of push to embrace our allies. He also, um, I think, probably the best U.S.-China policy that can be fashioned is one that's fashioned in, in, from a position of an America that is building itself back. And if Biden's infrastructure packages package begins to work in this country, um, I don't really have a position on his social spending bills. But nonetheless, if the United States economy is strong and if we're strong as a nation, that's the best country um, that we can have to, to, to confront China and the challenge of China. And I think he's spending trying to spend a lot of time doing that as well. He has his hand, I, right? He does. He does. So final question. So uh, first of all, again, for people who haven't read either Chinese lessons, but I, you know, as a historian in particular, the beautiful country in the Middle Kingdom, uh, it's a it's an extraordinary work of of synthetic history. But in 2007, you were awarded 
the Shorenstein Award, the Shorenstein Prize from Harvard and Stanford for your lifetime coverage of Asia. I guess you should have retired then. That was 2007, 14 years ago, going on 15 years ago. Uh, your lifetime coverage. What, what's next? What's next for John Pomfret? Do you have a new book? So this is just an example of, of you, know, you asked me a question about the China field. And it's an example of where schmucks like me have gone. I'm basically, my, my, my new book is a book about Poland and how the United States, how the CIA and Polar spies fashioned this extraordinary alliance in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And it's a book about, again, a post-communist society, but it's Poland, and how that post-communist society kind of, in, in terms of the intelligence space, liaised with the rest of the world. So it's an example of where China people have gone. They've, they've gone to Poland. So I'm writing about another country with unpronounceable names, but, <laughs> but it has, ha- happens to be in middle Europe. And how in the world did you get to Poland? I mean, why, why there? Why not? So Who knows? back in the day, I was the post correspondent in Eastern Europe, and I was ah. based in Warsaw, even though I spent most of my time in Bosnia, because this was 1992 to 1996 when Bosnia right. was in flames. But I, I wrote a little bit about Polish spies then, and I always wanted to thought that would be an interesting area to mine and the kind of collapse of China as a as a place where I could go to and spend time in and study um, forced me to to take this remarkable adventure with Poland and and U.S. and their the, the and the name of that book. It's called From Warsaw with Love. Love it. Love the love the reference from Warsaw with Love. It'll be out when it's been out since October. Oh, yeah. out since October. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm catching up. My apologies. Okay, go. it's been out since October. No I, I would just say to to wrap up that um, as a Japan guy, who's someone who started doing Japan, uh, I can empathize. Um, you know, not because I can't go to Japan. I still can go to Japan, and before COVID did, but because you know, after the the uh, you know the mid '90s or so, uh, the the urge, the impetus uh, to go to Japan because it was rapidly reshaping the world we lived in left. And I would say that that really was a problem with a lot of the Japan field. It's, it's fascinating to hear you say that about China, because I see people piling into the China field, people, quite frankly, who don't have all that much knowledge, um, people not like yourself who were able to live there and speak the language um, even a little bit, let alone fluently, but they're out there calling the shots on all these different things. Um, and it seems to me that for the rest of, of our working lives, China is going to be the thing. Whereas if you'd gotten into Japan in the sixties, the it was the thing for your working life until about the nineties. So fascinating to hear you say that it'll be as, as the opportunities to go to China continue to shrink or, or simply have shrunk and stay there. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. I actually for a little bit wondered if this might not benefit a country like Japan, also critical uh, economically critical, politically in Asia, critical as a security element, and yet, of course, an ally, democratic and open. And whether people might not go there, what, whether it might not have benefited or will benefit Taiwan, same sets of things. So to hear you, I think you went a little far afield all the way to, to, to Poland, but really an interesting insight as to what we might look for in the China studies community. So, John, uh, as always, uh, just a great pleasure to talk with you and catch up, but to hear your thoughts about the last 40 plus years uh, to hear what you're doing, but but really um, the, the clarity with which you explained how we should be dealing with China going forward. Uh, just wonderful. And I'm glad you took time to join us. 
Thank you very much, Misha. It's always a pleasure. Thanks a lot. So we've been talking with John Pomfret, uh, the author of uh, The Beautiful Country uh, and the Middle Kingdom, among other works, and a new work coming out on uh, the CIA and and Poland. Uh, Still an active journalist. You can catch him at the Washington Post Global Opinions, or, or if you're lucky enough, run into him on Stanford's campus. So for the Pacific Century, this is Misha Oslin. Thank you for joining, and we will see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.